Good morning, everybody. So we're going to be in our second to last lesson on a series we've been doing this year, Learning to Walk in Wisdom with God, as we've been looking in Ephesians 5 and 6. And we've been looking at ways that um, implying God's, applying God's instructions here really requires wisdom both to understand how to apply it, but then how to think about these things in a way that we can personally and practically invest into our daily circumstances as well. Um, Ephesians 6 verse 10 begins to conclude the letter by really pulling everything together. Um, If you've been trying to apply the instructions we've been studying uh, both last year as we were looking at Ephesians 4 and this year in Ephesians 5 and 6, when we try to specifically submit to things that God tells us to do, we face a lot of conflict, resistance, we struggle, and all of that is very good because ultimately in verse 10, it encourages us to learn to depend on the strength of the Lord when we are determined to invest our faith in God and depend on him. So we're going to spend this morning in the sermon looking at verses 10 through 17 and how wisdom recognizes our struggle. So much of the Ephesian letter, um, really the letter to the Ephesians, nearly more than any other book of the Bible, really pulls back the veil and encourages us to see more of the bigger picture of things that are related to our salvation and relationship with God in the spiritual realm. Um, Even Ephesians 1 verse 3 begins the letter saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so over and over again, when Paul's writing to the Ephesians, he is trying to paint the grandest picture of what God has done for us, what he's given us, where we are in our place within God's plan. And the letter concludes kind of going back to these bigger picture realities of where we really are in the grander scheme of God's work in our lives and in the spiritual realm. So we're going to be looking again at verses 10 through 17 specifically, and we'll look next month in December, Lord willing, at verses 18 through 20. Um, But just to reintroduce the text, let's read verses 10 through 17 again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So this is a lot of material to cover in one lesson, even though it's only eight verses. Um, So I'd like to just briefly look at first the nature of our struggle and the significance of really recognizing where God directs us to see our struggle really is. And then looking at the nature of God's power and strengths that we can have more encouragement and um, just more perception to depend on God's strength. And then we'll look briefly at the armor of God that he gives us to stand firm in as well. 
So let's start with the nature of our struggle. And I really want to encourage you to see that a vital work of our faith is learning both to recognize and embrace the nature of this struggle. Um, We face a lot of conflicts in our lives, and we tend to invest energy and thought and our heart and our will in overcoming things that we see as significant struggles or conflicts in our lives. But what God is trying to help us to see is that there's one conflict that really serves as the greatest conflict of our existence, and that's in verse 11 and 12. I want to start with pointing out what our struggle is not against as it's pointed out here. You'd think in the passage he could easily just say what our struggle is against and not even talk about what it's not against. And he could easily just say our struggle is against Satan. But in order to be, I think, more clear on where we need to redirect our emphasis and where I think we're maybe prone to direct our emphasis is he first starts with where our struggle is not in verse 12. And I want to be really clear about this. Our struggle not being against flesh and blood, that means our struggle is ultimately not against people. So even though Satan may work through people, may tempt us because of our environment, maybe things with our work environment can be difficult because of our coworkers, ultimately our struggle is not with our coworkers, our classmates, our teachers, our bosses, our employers. Um, And so that can be difficult to see. But I think it can be also difficult to see, and I think this is something that um, can be more and more difficult to see sometimes, is our struggle is not against political parties. Our struggle is not against politicians or against policies that politicians make. It's not against governments. Can Satan work through politicians and political movements, cultural movements, Sure, he can do that, just like he works through people. Um, But ultimately, that's not where our struggle is against. And something I just want to put into your mind, what if as Christians we misunderstand where our struggle is and we fight the wrong battle and we fight the wrong enemy? What does that give Satan the liberty to do if we're focusing on the wrong enemy and fighting the wrong battle? That's important to think about. So what are we struggling against? Ultimately, it's against the schemes of the devil and the power of his armies in the heavenly places. And I think this is meant to be, in some senses, quite intimidating. So if you look at verse 11, I think it should be intimidating that it says that we need to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Do you think Satan is cunning? Do you think he's experienced? Um, something that can be difficult um, to keep in mind is ultimately that we are not, in the grand scheme of things, in so many ways, very special, right? We face the same temptations as so many people have in the past. Satan has tempted many people with the same things he's tempted us with. And so Satan is very good at what he does. You know, there's, just to illustrate this, there's a word that scheming can be translated into, and that's the word wily like conniving or, um, you know, again, kind of a schemer. I I grew up with a cartoon um, that I think was older than when I was a kid. It was the Roadrunner and the Wily Coyote. And do you remember the coyote was always scheming like a plan to try to trip up the Roadrunner, but he was always like escaping and it would backfire. 
Um, really, that's kind of as silly as it is. That's really the image of depending on God's strength. And what we'll see in just a moment with Jesus on the cross is even though this is meant to be intimidating and we're meant to see very realistically that Satan is scheming and thinking and creating a plan for how to work against us in our relationship with God, that's not to leave us in a frightened state without being fortified to trust in God's solution to see how powerful God is. But if you look at verse 12 as well, it's not just that the devil himself is scheming. I think it's interesting that there are multiple parties that are referenced who are with Satan in his scheming. So if you look at verse 12 again, it's against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So not only do I not understand everything that Satan is scheming, these are forces that I can't see, that I can't tangibly interact with, and that on my own I have no tools to properly fight against these enemies. And these are enemies that by all accounts it seems are much more powerful than I am, right? And so what should that leave me to do? I want you to think about this as well. That this might seem somewhat redundant, but sometimes I think it's helpful just to reemphasize some of these very simple things and just acknowledge them um, very clearly. But I think it's helpful to realize, you know, in Satan's scheming, what is he trying to do? Satan does not want us to trust in God's power or see the nature of his strength. Satan does not want us to mature and grow in the grace of God to become more obedient to his word, to understand more entirely the salvation he's given me and to be more encouraged by that. Satan does not want me to learn the truth, to grow in my knowledge of the Bible and of the truth of the Bible. Satan does not want me to make wise decisions in my life that honor God instead of choosing foolishness. Satan does not want me to be pure, to be holy, and he does not want me to imply to apply God's instructions that would lead me to grow in his love. And Satan is experienced. He's capable, cunning, and strong. So again, just like what was said earlier, Satan is good at what he does. We've all fallen into Satan's traps. We've all been tempted and given into temptation. We've all been caught into deep habitual sins that can be very difficult to find the strength and the fortitude of will to escape. And so we just need to start just really respecting in a healthy way the nature of our adversary and the struggle we're facing. But if we understand that Satan is scheming against us and that he has all of these unseen forces working with him, what that should lead us to, to do is fortify our resolve in our faith. See, kind of think about it this way. When I was growing up, I don't hear this much anymore, so maybe there's less and less people who grew up this way. But when I was a kid, older people would lament that when they were younger, they never locked their doors in their neighborhood, like everybody had their doors open, because you know back in the day, things were safer, you didn't have to worry about people breaking in. But of course, they're lamenting about that because you know there's more danger, houses get broken into, therefore people lock their doors. And there's all sorts of intricate home security systems that people create nowadays. And why do they do that? Because there's a risk of danger. People fortify what's valuable to them and secure it so that it is safe, right? Uh, my mom used to work for a very large company as a computer programmer. Uh, it was a company called Patterson Dental. 
Um, some of you may have even heard of that company. Um, but it was a very big company. And so she worked on like the security and the back end of their website with like their database material and things like that. Things where like passwords are stored away, financial information is stored away. And so I want you to kind of think in your mind, how many hacking attempts do you think there were to get into their database just on a daily basis? Thousands. So what would happen is hackers would create programs that are actually constantly attempting new hack attempts. So you have hundreds of hackers who are all using these programs that are constantly trying new hack attempts. And so what does that lead a company to do to protect their assets, fortify their security, and spend resources making sure that what is valuable is being protected, right? And so if this is the reality that God is saying that we are in, that we are caught in the midst of this very critical conflict, and that it's not that we're ill-equipped, it's that we need to learn that we cannot depend on ourselves. What that should lead us to do then is fortify our resolve to protect our faith, our relationship with, our, with God, and our obedience to his will. And so with that then, obviously, it's critical that we think about the nature of God's strength. And a vital work of our faith, just like it's vital to learn the nature of our struggle, who we're ultimately fighting against, that we can focus on that struggle and fortify our faith in the right way. It's also vital that we learn to recognize and embrace the nature of God's strength instead of our own. I think a helpful way to illustrate this, um, when I was about 20, I started working for UPS. And I started working... Um, unloading uh, trailers with packages in them, and you'd have to unload like five trailers within a few hours. And my trainer at that time, he saw that I looked like I would be able to work really hard and do good with physical labor. Because at that time I lifted weights and I had like what looked like decently sized muscles. What he didn't realize though is the way that I lifted weights was not anything that cultivated any kind of realistic endurance. It was just I lifted the weights a few times and put it down and then it felt really good and that was it. So within a few minutes of unloading packages, I was like bent over, I was sweating, my muscles were hurting, I could hardly work the next day when I came back in and he was really, really disappointed. And he told me, like, I thought when I looked at you, we were not even going to have a problem here. But actually it was actually like worse because I had trained my body for a certain kind of strength, and I didn't realize how different it would be doing something that required more endurance. The reason I say that is in verse 10, this is a very different kind of strength than what any of us have dealt with in the world. This isn't like having the self-will to stop a habit. This isn't like doing something that maybe we're more naturally motivated to do or something that we can just discipline ourselves to accomplish. This is something completely different. And when we are learning to depend on God and not on ourselves, because you notice again in verse 10, it's not that God is saying when we're weak, no, just be strong. He's saying we need to learn to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The reason it can be so difficult to obey God, to be consistent and patient, is because we've spent so much time training ourselves to be self-dependent, to rely on our own strength, so that when we learn to depend on God and we realize how difficult it is, we're prone to become impatient, to give up, 
to sin as a solution instead of continuing to trust God. And this is, again, this is why we need these strong exhortations to learn to be strong in the Lord. And I love the song, wait, wait, be strong in the Lord. Um, Be strong and take courage. Yes, wait on the Lord. Uh, Just that idea of having patience in the Lord and waiting for him to deliver, to answer our prayers is so encouraging. And Brandon led such a good song just before the lesson to be strong in the Lord. So what I first want to emphasize, though, in verse 10, and I don't want to overlook this, I think we really sometimes need to not blow over how astonishing it is that it can be truthfully said that God is giving us access to his full power. So you think about who God is, right? The God who created all the universe and all its existence, like we sang in that song, How Great Thou Art. The God who overcame the nations in Canaan. The God who performed all of the great miracles we read about in the Old Testament. The God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead and trained the Apostle Paul and converted him and made him into somebody that wrote the majority of our New Testament. That same God is committed to us, is with us, and has made available his full strength. That should matter to us. That should be something that we are astonished and humbled by. And we should be motivated to take advantage of that, right? And so I think before anything else, we just need to pause and just realize how amazing it is that this can be truthfully said and that these things are available to us. But back in chapter 1, again, this requires a, a change of perspective to really understand the nature of God's power. And I think this leads us back to a prayer that I've referenced multiple times recently. Um, But look back at chapter 1, verse 18. Ephesians is a letter that really does a lot of referencing to God's power. And we'll look at a few of those places here. But I, I think when we look back at how Paul has already referenced God's power in this letter, it helps paint a more accurate picture of what he's talking about in chapter 6 when we're being encouraged to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Chapter 1, verse 18, I'll read through verse 23. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we need to notice in verse 18, Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. Because again, this isn't a strength like somebody who wins an Olympic athletic game. This isn't like somebody who reaches the pinnacle of their career, right? How is this strength demonstrated in verse 20? It was when Jesus was risen from the dead. But I want you to think about this. When Jesus was dying on the cross, did that in that moment, did that look like a great demonstration of God's power to people who were looking up. Where people, when they saw Jesus dying, when they saw him take his last breath, 
Were they thinking, wow, this is the greatest thing, the strongest act of God's power I've ever seen. Never heard of anything like this. Even when Jesus raised from the dead, it took time for people to really understand the power of what was accomplished in his resurrection. So the reason I bring this up is when we're thinking about Jesus' resurrection as the demonstration of God's power, God's power working in our lives doesn't come in the form of us feeling very heroic oftentimes. It might be when we're feeling very defeated, when we're feeling crippled by circumstance, by grief, by emotion, when we're being persecuted, oppressed, when we're struggling with temptation and have to quietly make decisions within our heart in those moments. Jesus demonstrated that God's power and the way that power is exerted is not in a way that in any way aligns with what people in the world would call great power. And I think this is something that's meant to be very encouraging about this, that in Jesus' resurrection, God demonstrated that he has the power to turn Satan's tactics into opportunities for his grace to abound even more richly. You may remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, It's one of my favorite things that the Apostle Paul ever wrote down. It's when um, a messenger of Satan was sent to torment him and he cried out to God three times that it would be removed. And I imagine it was something that was distracting, it was crippling, it was getting in the way of other things he could be doing as an apostle if he just had the ability to have more focus and have more presence. And when Paul finally appealed to the Lord the third time, do you remember what God told Paul? He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. That's the strength that Jesus brought into the world when he was risen from the dead. Look at chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. So God's power, he can reverse the course of our existence. Just like in the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about Jesus' resurrection And then he follows that up talking about our resurrection, that we were dead in sin, but then God has brought us to new life as well and raised us from the dead. But then in chapter 3, there's another angle of God's power that is really critical to consider as well. Look at chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So I don't think it's an accident that this prayer leads into the portion of the letter that is centered on making application. So in Ephesians, you know, just kind of like an easy memory tool, chapters 1 through 3 deals with the roots of our faith. So it's kind of like, here's everything that God has done to make it possible 
for you to be in the position that he's put you in with salvation. So chapters 1 through 3 is the roots of our faith, and then chapters 4 through 6 is the fruits of our faith, where it's more applications of everything that God has done. But verse 14 through 21, what we just read, the point is that this prayer leads into those applications. And God's power, when you read verse 16, this can sound very, um, very difficult to understand and intangible. You know, like, what does it look like or what does it even mean that I be strengthened with his power through his spirit in the inner man and that Christ may dwell in my heart through faith and that I would be rooted and grounded in love and all these other things? What does that look like? What does that mean? It's chapter 4 through 6. I mean, you start in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Walking worthy of the calling, having all humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance for one another in love. It's when we're diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In verses 12 through 16, when we are striving to work together as a united body of Christ and mature and grow together in love. 17 through 32, it's when we're trying to apply these various qualities of God's love and holiness. Chapter 5 and chapter 6, all of these relational instructions. When we are striving to submit ourselves specifically to God's will, when we are doing that with a right heart, with a right faith, with a right conviction, God is powerfully working behind the scenes and within us to cause our faith to bear fruit, make us faithful servants, join us more entirely together, and mature us together into his glory. So what is God's power? What does his strength look, lo- look like? It looks like the application of the things that we've been studying for the past two years. I think Ephesians chapter 6, again, as I said at the beginning of the lesson, really concludes the letter by bringing everything together and pulling together all of the applications and saying, now when you apply these things, here's some final encouraging words to continue doing that. And so let's look at the last thing that we're going to be studying this morning with the nature of God's armor in verses 13 through 17. Um, Ephesians has outlined many different gifts God has given us. And just even to reference that, um, look at chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I think this, this kind of embodies the entire letter when it says, to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captive and he gave gifts to men. Ephesians really outlines all of the different gifts that God has given us through Jesus Christ. And it's almost like at the end of this letter, Paul, with all of these instructions he's given, concludes by saying, God has one more gift that he's given you, one more, and that is armor. Look at Isaiah chapter 59. And I think this this passage for me has really helped heighten the great significance of the armor that God has given. Look at Isaiah 59, 15 through 20. And this is to make the point that this is not just, you know, armor, but it's armor that's been tested and proven in battle already. Isaiah 59, verses 15 through 20. Um, Let's start in verse 14, actually. So this is 
a context painting the picture that things, in a way, looked very hopeless. Verse 14, justice is turned back, righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the street, and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his, upright, and his righteousness upheld him. Now look at verse 17. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the close land, coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion and, those, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. So you look back at verse 17. When God saw that there was no justice, when he determined that he would accomplish salvation himself and that a redeemer would come to Zion and accomplish his will, he put on this armor. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And what did that look like? When Jesus was exhausted, already to the point of death, when he walked about a stone's throw away from his disciples, fell on his face and prayed. When he understood finally that God's will was that he go forward and suffer the cross, when Jesus got up from prayer, crossed the book Kidron, and faced the mob and allowed himself to suffer arrest and abuse. How could Jesus be so bold? Because he went forward with righteousness like a breastplate and salvation like a helmet on his head. So you see, it's not that God has just given us armor. It's that God has given us his armor that he used to overcome Satan. And so this is armor that's been tested and it's been proven. And so when we think about this armor back in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 14 through 17, We have six different pieces of armor. And I want you to notice in verse 13, it's emphasized we need to take up the full armor of God. I want you to just picture in your mind if there was some war situation, especially in an ancient sense, and somebody going out to war didn't even bother to put on their full armor. And you imagine going out to war with them, and there you are wearing your full armor, and you look over, and they're just wearing their normal clothes. You know, and you think, how foolish, how arrogant to think that you're going to be able to make it through this so unprotected, right? And so again, if we understand the nature of the conflict that we're in, if we really understand it tangibly and believe what God is conveying, we understand that we can't just take pieces of the armor and leave others behind. Satan is scheming. He's cunning. He's good at what he does. And so if we're not taking the full armor... Satan is going to target us where we're leaving ourselves most vulnerable. But if we do put on the full armor, there are multiple promises here that we will be able to stand firm. 
One of my favorite promises is verse 16, when it mentions the shield of faith. Is the shield of faith only slightly effective? Is it that there are some tools in Satan's arsenal? Well, the shield of faith really isn't going to protect you against everything, but at least with the majority. No. The shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. What I'm meaning to convey is God's strength is an inexhaustible resource. It is a well that we can never tap out. His armor is proven and tested. So when we are struggling in our faith or with temptation or in our attitude, whatever it might be, the issue is never that God has failed to provide enough or that he's not given everything we need to be strong, stand firm, and overcome. The issue is always whether or not I'm going to choose to pursue what God has supplied and to equip it and to put it on. And something that I think is very helpful, again, with maybe thinking a little bit more tangibly about things that can seem very ambiguous and intangible is how to maybe think about some of these things. So verse 14, we're to secure truth at our waist. The Ephesian letter has talked about the fact that truth is critical to our lives as Christians, that truth is in Jesus, and that the Gentiles who do not know God are, are lost in mind, calloused in heart, do not know the truth, and do not know God. And so Ephesians has emphasized the fact that we need truth in our lives, not just to know it and agree with it in our minds, but to practice it, to be convicted by it, and to follow through with it. And then if you think about after the girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, Ephesians has talked about the righteousness that's provided through Jesus, through his death, the righteousness that comes through faith. Righteousness not just being doing what is right, but doing what God says and doing it with the right heart condition and the right intention. Having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 talked in length about the accomplishment of peace that the gospel provides. And the gospel of peace, having peace equips us to be bold in the face of conflict, to stand firm when things are difficult. Verse 16, having the shield of faith, Ephesians has emphasized that salvation comes through faith and that we can trust God, we can trust his faithfulness, we can trust his ability to keep his promises. The helmet of salvation, Ephesians has talked in length about how salvation and the work that God did to save us protects our mind, protects our heart. Having the sword of the Spirit being the word of God. So many of these applications are offensive applications. Not that it offends people, but that it steps forward, right? That when we are trying to serve God, when we're growing in his grace, when we're applying the things we've studied, we are making steps closer to God and we are overcoming the enemy actively as we grow in his grace and as we become more like Jesus in accordance with his image. So the idea is this. We are overwhelmingly equipped. For those of you who were here a few weeks ago, we did a study of Psalm 18. And you remember in Psalm 18, David both pictures how God had very powerfully delivered him from calamity, how God had been faithful to secure David in a place of safety, but also then how God empowered David to accomplish his will in ways that were impossible. We are more equipped 
than David was, than Joshua was, than the prophets were. This armor that God has given us is so specially connected to what Jesus accomplished when he arose from the dead and what he uniquely made available in the new covenant. And so this, with all of these other gifts outlined in Ephesians, again, it's not that we're ill-equipped in our relationship with God, it's that we're over-abundantly equipped in our relationship with God. So I want to read verses 10 through 17 again and just emphasize the encouragement to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. May God help us to be strong in his strength, to be aware of our struggle, and to put on his full armor every day in serving him. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, if you have not put on Christ in baptism, I would urge you to see that outside of Christ, you are dead, that there is no strength, there is no hope, that the only hope of strength is to submit to the gospel and let God bring you alive in baptism. And that if you will submit your life to Christ, to surrender and repentance, and if you'll in faith be baptized for the remission of your sins, God will faithfully make his strength available, adopt you into his family, and secure you in his kingdom. And if there's any other need that we can assist you with in your relationship with God, now is the time to bring that forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.